The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Derek Dorch of the Diversa Group, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Derek T. Dorch. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, part of the Federal News Network. Today we've got an interesting topic. One of the things we're going to be talking about is China. If you've been paying attention to the news, China is one of the things that the president constantly talks about. China is one of the things that we constantly hear as a concern, a trade situation, national security situations. China's always in the news in terms of what we're dealing with in terms of national security, international security situations. And today we're going to be talking about these issues in terms of the complexities. It's not just a kind of simple black and white situation with China. There's a lot of different dynamics that we have to deal with when it relates to China in terms of the future. And China has been known to play the long game as it relates to what's going on. Today we're going to be talking about that. We've got some friends from Stratfor here in the studio today. We've got Roger Baker. He's here. He's a senior vice president of analysis at Stratfor. You can find Stratfor at Stratfor.com. They're a geopolitical intelligence firm, a private intelligence firm that does a number of different things for a number of different people, for agencies, organizations, companies, uh, the Global 500, really doing analysis around the world and trying to find out what's going on and giving people forecasting, uh, threat, threat pictures and analysis to help them make decisions. Roger, thank you for joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Hey, Roger's all the way in from Austin, so we're glad to have him. Hey, man, how's Austin doing right now? How's Austin? It's warm. It's, <laughs> well, you didn't you didn't lead it. Well, you came right back into warm. So, hey, we're glad to have you. Hey, but, you know, I know with you and Stratfor, you guys have been monitoring China and what's going on probably since your inception. Um, what, in terms of the global picture, as we're relating to the issues with China, and we constantly hear about the president talking about China, and we also hear about a number of other world leaders talking about China, and we also hear about China moving into different countries, Africa and other places like that. What is the global dynamic and the global situation and, and the picture right now as it relates to China? I mean, the basic reality is that China is a growing country. It's got a, a rapidly growing economy, particularly the the last 10, 15 years. There was a massive expansion of Chinese economic activity. That made the Chinese tremendously dependent on uh, international resources and markets, um, which is something that has never been the case in Chinese history. For almost all of Chinese history, they consumed what they produced, produced what they consumed. China is now um, – intimately connected into the global economic system, that means that they're going to have to start spreading their political and their military um, elements to back that up and secure that. And the other aspect is that China's growth by default means that uh, if there's only one pie of the world, uh, the percent uh, balance of that pie is starting to change. And so that creates a, a sense of uh, uh, concern and caution in places like the United States that since the end of the Cold War have primarily been status quo powers and not really wanted to see this change in dynamics. Mm -hmm. You know, with this growing evolution, and, and we kind of look at it from a number of things, we always say, hey, listen, the U.S. has a lot of debt with China. China is now growing. I mean, their population is what, a couple billion people almost or, or maybe a little bit more. Um, and now they're getting into the market, like you said, a lot more. And they're also driving technology. I've been reading reports about them just trying to be technology leaders. Um, where does that stand in terms of, you know, the U.S. has always pictured themselves as, as the power, right? You know, we're the power of, of the world and everything else. It seems as if China's trying to make a play to now kind of, and I've even been watching some reports where they're saying, no, we're going to be the number one and you're going to be number two. Where does that stand? I mean, what are you seeing? Well, I think that the Chinese have, have mixed thoughts on this. On the one hand, they don't really want the responsibility that the United States has taken on okay. in the global system. Okay. They don't want the responsibility for managing the global reserve currency because mm -hmm. that actually costs quite a bit. 
and has certain limitations, and it puts uh, uh, real constraints on the Chinese economy itself. Okay. They certainly don't want to be the power that runs around and has to intervene militarily everywhere because that undermines their political and economic aspects. Right. What they're really working to do right now is to start to change the global standards, norms, and regulations to fit the Chinese model of the way in which government, business, and population work together, which is very different than effectively the North Atlantic consensus, the way mm. in which the United States and the Western Europeans had – had thought about how mm-hmm. how things should work. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese argument is that, look, you have a very small piece of the world that has thought about how things should work, and that's worked for you. But there's a huge rest of the world that mm-hmm. wasn't part of making those agreements and those arrangements. Right, right. And, and from the Chinese perspective, the number one role of government is to keep the population stable – um, and that keeps the government in power, which keeps the population mm-hmm. stable, which and cycles through. Mm-hmm. And so the government is supposed to be a very integral part of business mm. and of business operations, not only domestically but internationally. And the Chinese say, let us do it. Okay. And, and the U.S. and the Europeans don't like this concept right, a whole lot. Right, right. You know, with all of that, is, is, and if, if China is not necessarily trying to take the number one spot, right, so to say, in terms of what you just mentioned about kind of being a military power and everything else – We've heard constantly about the concerns, right, about, oh, China's now getting a navy. China's now doing this, that, and the other. Are those overblown concerns? I mean, are those situations now where people are just kind of maybe taking something? China's just saying, hey, listen, for our own national security, we're going to, you know, increase these things. But are those concerns that we have to be aware of that China's growing their, their military? I think the reality is we do have to be aware of these okay. things anyway. Even if the Chinese are not plotting to take over the world, um, they are going to have interests that are going to compete or contradict U.S. interests in certain mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. grand strategy is based on the concept that we're outnumbered everywhere. <laughs> right, and right, sure. and therefore, we have to be able to keep any conflict as far away from our shores right. as possible. Right. And when you look at the Chinese doing something like the Belt and Road Initiative, mm-hmm. it looks like um, Sir Halford Mackinder's worst nightmare, right. right? It is linking up Europe, Asia, and Africa into a single – economic population connected entity that then could become the largest maritime power in the world and that would significantly weaken how the U.S. sees its national security. So I think that these things have to be seen. They have to be aware and there are going to be confrontations and clashes. But it's not necessarily a traditional Cold War paradigm where Mm -hmm. you're either on the Chinese side or you're on the U.S. side. And that makes management much more complicated. Mm. You know, you mentioned the Belt Road Initiative. And and I want you to kind of maybe go into detail because I know some people have heard about it. Some people haven't heard about it. Can you describe that a little bit? Because it's a big deal in China. A lot of people have been talking about it. But sometimes people are not always aware. What is that Belt Road Initiative? Yeah, I mean, on on the surface, the Belt and Road Initiative is a way for the Chinese to create and link um, land, sea and air infrastructure from China West through Europe um, mm-hmm. and then south down into Africa. And the idea is to reduce some of their dependency on maritime transit routes, mm-hmm. on maritime choke points through the Strait of Malacca. But it's also interestingly a lot about interior China and interior Chinese development. So if you think about the Chinese population, you've got about 1.3, 1.4 billion people in China. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, About 450 million of those are part of the active Chinese economy. So the, the Chinese middle class, that rising China that we think about, which right. is larger the entire population of the U.S. Sure. But that means there's about 800 million people who aren't part of that. Right. And as the Chinese economy goes through its transition and becomes more of a stable rather than a rapid growing economy, those 800 million have been told, you're not going to get rich anymore. You're just mm-hmm. going to stay where you're, you're at. Right here. Yeah. And in the last five to ten years, the gap between that middle component of China and the coastal China has like quadrupled. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so if they look east, 
they get angry at what's going on in China. So if you can take Belt and Road, and a lot of Belt and Road money goes to interior China, and then tries to shift the focus of interior Chinese population west and south rather than looking east at their compatriots. So it's mm. also a domestic social management right, tool. Right, right. You know, there's a lot of complications in that. <laughs> you, just, you just opened up a whole can of worms right there, you know, uh, Roger. You know, in, in terms of thinking about that, when we think about, and, and we may have to hit it on the next segment, but when we think about this, right, when we think about kind of where China, because China has a very, very big population, and you're seeing a number of different people not be happy, right? You're, you're seeing a number of people, internal China, not be happy. Then you're also getting this Hong Kong mix, right? You're getting other people. Then you've got Taiwan. Then you've got all these other kind of people who are kind of like, you know, I'm not really happy with what we're, what's going on right now. Will this eventually change the dynamics of how China is ruled? Um, you know, they have a certain kind of, you know, kind of way they run the country. Is that going to change certain things? The short answer is the Chinese are working really hard to make it not change. Okay. Do you feel it's in the best interest that that influence from other from us, maybe other Western nations continues to kind of change that? Or would that cause more conflict? I, I think it, it always has some potential benefit um, in, in social structures. But in the end, the Chinese are really working and saying our concept of society is that society needs to be stable and the government may serve society, right. but they serve it to stabilize society. Sure. Whereas in the West, it's the idea that the individual is right. sacrosanct. Right. And in right. China, the individual right. is not sacrosanct. Right, right. So we we constantly going to kind of probably see that the Chinese dynamic of government will still be that we have the overarching dynamic, even with business. Um, you know, we're in charge of, you know, you can kind of be a Alibaba or whatever the case is, but we still have our hand in it. Without a doubt. OK. <laughs> you know, we're talking about China right now, a complicated. We just unraveled a number of different things we're going to keep on talking about. But China is a complex situation. You hear the president talking about it all the time. And we're trying to kind of understand it a little bit more as it relates to the U.S., as it relates to the world, because there are certain things that are happening that we really do need to see and really need to understand. Probably that's going to really have an impact for the next 20, 50, 100 years uh, in terms of our national security, in terms of trade and a number of other things that are going on. We're talking to Roger Baker. He's a senior vice president of strategic analysis at Stratfor. You can find Stratfor at Stratfor.com. They're a geopolitical firm that really does a lot of different analysis, and China is one of their main issues as well. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Federal News Radio. You're listening to Derek T. Dorch on Fed Access. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, part of the Federal News Network. If you just joined us, we've been talking about China. We're talking about China and national security, talking about China and trade, talking about China and a number of different issues as it impacts the United States and also impacts the world. And we're going into this issue in terms of really trying to get an understanding of what's happening and where should we be thinking about China in the long term? What's going on? We're talking from our friends from Stratfor. Uh, we've had them on before. They're back again all the way from Austin in the studio with me is Roger Baker. He's a senior vice president of strategic analysis at Stratfor. You can find Stratfor at Stratfor.com. They always have some interesting insights on what's going on in the world. So you can definitely check them out. Roger, you know, when we when we think about this whole China situation and, you know, you just mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. We just mentioned a number of different things in terms of expansion um, and all the other kind of pieces. You know, the world has been a little bit in flux in terms of, uh, of alliances. Right. I mean, you know, people saying, hey, is there going to be a NATO anymore? Is it going to be this anymore? Um, we've seen kind of China start to try to start build alliances. I mean, we, we've always seen it in Africa, but we, we're starting to see some stuff in Europe. We're starting to see other things going on. Where is China thinking as it relates to 
these strategic alliances. I mean, where we used to be the strategic alliance, you know, kind of country, um, where it seems that China's starting to step into that fold as well. Where is that going? Well, China is really trying to expand what it considers to be strategic partners. Okay. It doesn't want full alliances because it doesn't want the responsibility to have to intervene in another space. Um, and that's the big difference. You know, the United States will lock itself in a relationship where conceptually it's required then to go in and assist the other country. And what China wants to do is what they like to refer to as win-win. And by win-win, it means China wins and the other people <laughs> get stuff when things are going good. Right, sure. But when things aren't going so good, the Chinese are not necessarily going to come in and right. rescue them. Right. And so they're expanding out a lot in that area. Um, it's part of their foreign policy management. It's part of their way of easing their way into building relationships. And quite frankly, though, they also do it as a way to highlight the difference between their relationships and those of the United States and the Europeans mm. of the past, mm -hmm. where there's still that perception that if, you, if you're the big power and you come in and you try to do these things, you're being imperialistic and telling people what to do. And the Chinese have an interesting uh, way of presenting that. They say, well, we believe that all forms of government are right as long as you mm. don't pick on anybody right. else. And, and right. as long as we can do some deals, right. it's OK. And for a lot of the and world, that's very compelling. We're yeah. not going to tell you what to do. We're not going to hit human rights issues. We're not going to do all this other kind of stuff. Exactly. And it, and it becomes a, it, it's a, it's a very compelling thing. And then add in that the Chinese right now have a lot of money that they're able to give outward. And the United States just hasn't been giving out – I mean the United States gives tons of money all over sure. the place. But still mm -hmm. it's not in these concentrated hits like we see from the Chinese. Mm -hmm. The Europeans haven't been doing it as much. The Japanese haven't been doing it as much. So in a lot of places where they were trying now to move up and develop infrastructure, these partnerships with the Chinese are great because you get Chinese money. You get mm -hmm. infrastructure development which lets you increase your own economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the trade-off is you say, well, we don't recognize Taiwan and uh, – we're going we're gonna to be a little more cautious with how often we let the U.S. move its military assets into our country. It's OK because right now the Chinese aren't really trying to attack us and we right. don't necessarily get a lot out of having that ship visit. Sure, sure, sure. You know, it, it, it seems a very, very long-term picture that they're building, right, in terms of really – and we've seen infrastructure building, especially in Africa, I mean, where they're building roadways, uh, they're building buildings and everything else. But you do hear the complaints that they'll do a lot, but then they don't really give back to the – you know, to – you know, some people will get rich, right, but then a lot of people don't and everything else. Um, and and it, so it also makes me wonder in terms of relationships as it relates to Russia and all the other kind of people. Where is China – you know, because those are kind of the, the big three, right? Us, Russia, and China. Where is the relationship with Russia, who has also sometimes tried to move into certain countries as well? Well, I think the relationship with Russia is really, really interesting because, of course, the biggest Western fear always is the, the Chinese-Russian alliance sure, right. that becomes this dominant power. <laughs> right. Um, and right now, there's, a, there's an alliance of convenience hmm. in, in actions between the Chinese and the Russians. Okay. Um, Russia is still largely ostracized after the shootdown of the aircraft sure. during the Ukraine issue. Um, they're trying to, sh to at least balance some of their dependency on Europe uh, by shifting uh, focus to Western resources and pushing things out to Asia. It's a tiny bit. It's not nearly mm -hmm. comparable to what they've got. Um, and they largely have an interest in, in countering the, the status quo of the United States European domination of the, the world system. So in that, they're cooperative. The Russians are letting the Chinese put infrastructure into Central Asia, but there's a real nervousness between the two. The Chinese are not putting as much money into Western Russia as the mm -hmm. Russians would like. When the Chinese look at the Arctic, they're trying to think about the Transarctic and running through the middle and not having to go through Russian okay. territory. Okay. So the okay. Russians are trying to draw them in there. Sure. And then just to give you like a, a concrete example, in Central Asia where China is building rail across, 
The Russians have convinced the Central Asians not to let the Chinese build standard gauge. They still have to use Russian gauge. So every train from China hits the border, gets lifted up. The wheels are spread wider, mm-hmm. drop back down. Then when they get to Europe, they get lifted up. The wheels are shrunk smaller and drop wow. back down. So the Russians are keeping those little bits in there just to interfere right. and not allow China to dominate. Fully. Right, right, right. You know, with that in terms of – and I'm assuming this is a complex relationship as it relates to – the dynamics in terms of even national security, do we see them sharing anything as it relates to military exercises or things of that sort? They're learning a lot from each other, especially the Chinese are being able to use all sorts of different parts of Russian territory or Russian space to be able to learn different types of operations, even cold weather operations. Okay. Um, uh, and they, they did a lot of sharing of military technology, but the Chinese are now building a lot of what they would have used to buy from Russia. So they've actually reduced their purchases of certain key military technology from the Russians, and that's right. hurt the Russian arms sales. Mm. Um, and the Chinese are now countering the Russian arms sales by selling those same or, or derivative technologies to other countries wow. at a cheaper price. You know, that used to be one of the big businesses for us, right, where we would be, you know, and I mean, we still are into, into that business of heavy arms sales. But are we seeing an encroachment of, of China kind of really kind of moving into Not only areas? of China, but all sorts of places. Again, if you think about broad alliance structures – um, most of the U.S. allies are not opponents of China. Mm-hmm. They have a partial friendly relationship with China, a partial opposition to China. Even with Russia, they're not entirely opposed. You don't have those alliance structures anymore where you are economically, militarily, and politically aligned and that's it and you ignore everyone mm-hmm. else. Secondarily, the local issues are not necessarily the same as the big ticket issues and the U.S. arms wrap around fifth generation, sixth generation. They're the highest end of things. But if you're Indonesia – you don't need an F-35 to fight rebels in the right. forest. Sure. You need something else. And sure. if the U.S. is putting most of its attention, especially as we go back into the perception of great power competition. Right. Into major weapons. Into the systems. major systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good enough systems that are coming up across the board mm. um, and a lot of new entries into the field. And technology is facilitating new types of weapon systems that are lower cost, lower maintenance, disposable, easier to use in these types of locations. Um, and so there is, uh, uh, you know, it's it's taken a while, but uh, USA and D is starting to recognize. Wait right. a minute, it's a, it's not the Cold War world, and right. and, and right. it's harder to make these sales. Right. You know, that leaves an interesting uh, point. Um, where, where's the U.S. on this? Because I mean, you know, like you said, we've always focused in on heavy power, right? On the most technology in terms of tank systems, or you know, uh, uh, airplanes, or you know, uh, fighters, and everything else. Uh, you know, this seems to be kind of a changing scenario for us. You know, where is the U.S. as it relates to this? Well, I think the U.S. is is actually still coming out of, you know, 15, 16 years of looking at CT as the primary uh, right. battle that you're going to fight. So it's all counterterrorism, all right. counterterrorism. Well, the systems you develop and, the, and the, the ways in which you practice and the ways in which you deploy for that are very different than going back to saying, oh, no, we need to guard the Fulda Gap right. or, or, yeah, or, right. we need, or we need to be having, uh, you know, major maritime assets that are sitting out there. And, and U.S. expenditure, U.S. spends a lot on the military, but a lot of that is on maintenance and personnel and mm. keeping people rotating through right. and things. So large-scale purchases haven't been taking place at the rate that they have been in places like China. Mm. And that's why you see this perception that the Chinese are suddenly surging ahead right. in military assets, particularly in the Navy. It, it really does kind of almost indicate uh, – I, I hate to say this because we're here a, – a weakness for the U.S. right now that we're going to have to possibly kind of retool in terms of certain areas that we hadn't been thinking about. I mean, well – or that either we lost concept of, like you said, see, we've been in the global war on terrorism for so long that we and, – and, you know, the U.S. is very, very focused sometimes. We get focused on one thing. We, we were focused on Russia. Then we were focused on what's the name, and we kind of lose concept of everything else. But it seems as if this environment is becoming much more complex 
in terms of a national security environment and a military environment. Right. This change back to really reassessing, you know, looking at big powers and thinking about the structure for that doesn't eliminate the fact that you still have a global CT issue, counterterrorism issue that you're going to still have to be dealing with. And that uh, there's still the the whatever we still want to call them rogue state actors yeah, for sure. for small scale, and then there's a lot of non-state actors uh, that are using non-traditional tools that are becoming more and more viable uh, using cyber systems, using um, uh, drones, using uh, all sorts of things that are lower cost and give you the ability to counteract the overall power of the United States. And it's hard to create a proper military balance to deal with all of those things on the geographic scope that the U.S. has. And I think that's why. In part, you hear from this president, and you've heard it from lots of presidents before, sure. the allies and the partners need to start taking those responsibilities and doing it. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. may start to thin out its presence in certain places, and by default, other people will simply have to go in because they can't afford to leave it lying. Wow. That's a lot of, that's a lot to kind of even think about, right, <laughs> as we even absorb all of that. I want to talk about – when we come back, I want to talk about espionage. I want to talk about cyber. You just kind of mentioned two different things that are really kind of key – that everybody's thinking about kind of the cyber warfare, you know, area and also the dynamics of, you know, espionage, the theft of intellectual property and all other kind of pieces that we seem to have to deal with with China on a regular basis. I want to talk about that when we come back. We're talking to Roger Baker. He is the senior vice president of analysis at Stratfor. You can find Stratfor at stratfor.com. They're a geopolitical uh, a private intelligence firm who does analysis around the world. Really kind of what they talk about is putting the world in context, you know, kind of really kind of understanding the issues in order for people to make good decisions in order to make, you know, uh, when you're going into, if you're a company or you're an agency or whatever, if you're going into a country, you want to understand what's going on. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch on the Federal News Network, Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. If you're just joining the show, we've been talking about China. We've been talking about China and national security. We've been talking about China as it relates to cherry. We've been talking about China as it relates to the global scenario that is really kind of building uh, as it relates to China being a power that we have to deal with, the U.S. has to deal with. We've always known about it, but we hear it in the news more. We hear President Trump talking about it on a regular basis about China, 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 China. And so this is one of the issues that I think we have to understand. And today we've got an expert in the house right now in the studio. We've got Roger Baker. He's from Stratfor. You can find Stratfor at stratfor.com. But he's a senior vice president of analysis at Stratfor. They do an analysis around the world. But China is one of the areas they look at on a regular basis in terms of understanding it, putting it in context, understanding the issues that relates the complexities that we deal with when it comes to China and going from there. You know, Roger, when we, we were just kind of just talking as it relates to the military dynamic and this kind of swings us into espionage. Um, you know, we constantly hear if you if you just look at Department of Justice, uh, uh, the National Security Division's web you know page, you just see indictments over and over again about, you know, somebody spying for China, somebody doing this, somebody giving this kind of information or these resources to China. What What is the, the major situation going on in terms of espionage? Is China just, have they just become a beast as it relates to, you know, intelligence gathering and espionage in the United States and around the world? And how, you know, how threatening is this to us? Well, I think when, when you know, we're used to thinking in Western espionage, we normally think about targeting governments and, mm-hmm. and military and trying to understand the strategic assets. And the Chinese add the economic in there completely into mm-hmm. it. It's it's They have all three components in all of their espionage, and that's fine for them. They don't think of those as separate spaces. Mm-hmm. Again, that connection between government and corporation, right. government and business right. uh, is it there. It kind of reminds me of, of that uh, – I forgot who the general or the colonel was, but the unrestricted warfare, right, where you're just dealing with every single thing. They don't – there's no restrictions on what they hit. 
yeah, from the Chinese, these aren't separate things. Mm-hmm. You don't need to keep them keep them apart from each other. And, and so, really, this is about one understanding their opponent or their competitors. Uh, it's two about giving them a leg up and being able to accelerate their their growth. Um, they like to play up this concept of the hundred year humiliation. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of a retroactive concept. It's mm-hmm. not actually a, a, a real thing, but they use that as a way to justify internally and to their own people. Hey, this is why it's okay if we have to grab and take because right. we have the right. Yeah. To be to be built up and to build back up, and then they use it to try to find ways to to get ahead, both economically um, and to ease their dependence on the United States. I think that we forget that you know when you look at Chinese um, technology, for example, uh, they're doing a lot of great developments, but a ton of their supply chain and technology is still dependent upon U.S. designs. Um, right. That go and run through their system, so they yeah. still need the United States in there. They can't fully free themselves. Uh, when they were building a lot of their new aircraft, they still needed um, American or European engines for their aircraft. Mm-hmm. They they didn't quite get there. So there's right. a lot of things to give them that that national independence that they need, and they want to move that fast. So if you gotta steal, beg, or borrow, that's okay. And from their perspective, look, I mean, the United States got into um, uh, making clothing in the north. Because it stole mill designs from the British, mm, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a new <laughs> right, concept of right, stealing designs right, to right, increase right, the capability sure. of a country. It's just been the way the world isn't working. We we just uh, think about it today as unfair, right? Um, but it is. It's sort of one of these realities right. uh, of the world, right? You know, with China as it relates to that, you know, we constantly hear, um, and, and and as you just said, I mean, they're they're going after technology firms, they're going after other things. Um, there's a unique dynamic going on because China seems to be very restrictive in their country, right? In terms, you have a big population, but they don't want people to go too far. I mean, they want to build up their own internet, right? You don't want to go too far into this. We want you to understand things from our perspective. Do you see that changing anytime soon, or will that kind of still be the dominant play in which China says we're going to control information, you know, in for our people? I think the Chinese are going to keep trying to control information because, okay. again, that's a very important part of, of social management within China. I mean we forget that, that China is 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Yeah. That's a lot of people to try to manage and try yeah. to keep. And China is not monolithic like the Chinese like to make us think or like we sometimes think. Everyone goes, oh, they're all just Chinese. They're not. China is multiple ethnic groups with long mm-hmm. histories of separate languages mm-hmm. or, or, or separate cultures or things right. like that. Um, you know, That's why if you go to Chinese restaurants, you get yeah. all different styles. Right. Of food, right? Sure. Because the, the the diversity in China is is significantly greater even than the diversity of food styles in the United States, mm-hmm. and these old cultural right. differences are in there. So the Chinese are trying to manage and deal with that. Um, but it's a really interesting thing because the Chinese are really active in taking on new technologies, right? All these rideshare bikes that the dockless mm-hmm. bikes and scooters mm-hmm. and things. Right. Yeah, those were Chinese things mm-hmm. that they said, "Oh, this works here," and they came up with right. it and they did it, and that then exported it out. Um, in China, there are places in the big cities where you literally can't buy anything unless you have a bank account on your phone. Mm. You can't even you can't buy food. Cash. You right. can't use cash. You can't use credit cards. Yeah. They only work through the phone. Right. So on that sense, the Chinese are very active in using these. In China, people pay for information sometimes now, mm. which is opposite of the U.S., right? Sure. They're fine having their phone billed for little bits of their right. news feeds and right. things. Which is which, which would be which nice on this end, tough, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> Where our newspapers would say, yeah. hey, "I love that." Hey, pay for information, <laughs> exactly nice thing. Right. Um, but at the same time, that adoption gives yeah. the government access to massive amounts of information, mm. and there's and no what people are reading, what people want, uh, what people are looking at, where they're going, what they're doing, mm. all their movements, everything like that. And so, as the Chinese are working, for example, on developing AI algorithms. They have huge data sets of information mm. that they can work through to start right. making these developments that 
the Europeans in particular have almost no data sets because right. of their extreme views the on, on privacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, it's limited or it's in certain companies. Right. And I mean, that's the hearings, uh, you yeah. know, that'll be going on. The, the that's been going on Facebook all of this stuff and right? else, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, on that and who owns the information, who mm-hmm. doesn't. But that's giving the Chinese an ability to really accelerate their AI development. You start seeing that in um, the scientific papers that mm-hmm. are coming out, uh, that China is not just – uh, writing a lot of papers that have no meaning in them. Right. They're starting to really drive parts of these right. fields. Right. And that's going to be important technology to apply in a military context, to apply in an economic context um, around the world. You know, that kind of you know makes me wonder, I mean, in terms of – and, and it, I, I want to call it unfair, but it's, it's, a unique, it's a unique competitive advantage, right, to have that dynamic and have that data set of, of almost, you know, billions of people – I mean, a billion people – and be able to use that data set and then research on it and then basically turn out a product, how do, um, you know, how do we compete on that level? I mean, how do our companies, especially, I mean, we're all concerned about privacy, right? I mean, everybody's saying, hey, I don't want Facebook to be into my stuff too much. I don't want this, that, and the other. When you have that kind of dynamic right there, how do American companies compete? And let me also throw another thing at you. Are American companies still trying to move into China as as a place, as a marketplace? I mean, you know, I know China has been very restrictive in terms of how they control. And I know Google tried to get in and other people have tried to get in because China will say, well, we need this from you and, and we need access to this. And some people are like, ah, oh, you can't get access to this. How do we deal with that? Or And that, is that still a marketplace? So, I mean, th- this is just the the cost that we have to accept if we want to accept certain types of privacy, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you have different demands, you're going to have different costs or benefits against those. And that's just going to be a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, the That said, as the Chinese design and develop this technology, most of it will be geared probably toward um, political control purposes. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United States where it's being developed in other places, some of it will be totally frivolous. Some of it will be uh, what we'll consider to be business interfering in our life. But some of it will go to unexpected places where it's going to have unique benefits, right? The U.S. is more likely to have Tang moments than the Chinese mm-hmm. are in this. As for China still being a market, I, I think that China is still – I mean the, just the raw numbers, the size of the consumer class, China is still a place people want to be. But it's getting more complicated. The Chinese to counteract – um, mm-hmm. U.S. Uh, actions are accelerating opening certain sectors. Mm-hmm. They're accelerating mm-hmm. um, opening certain key parts of the country and right. types of industry. Um, and it's really going to be a play back and forth. And in the end, that helps the Chinese, though, in their competition with the United States because, again, you can't do a containment strategy of China because the economies are too closely linked. Wow. You know, as it relates to – we always hear about a number of people who – Chinese who are living in other parts of the world, America, other places like that. And we are starting to hear about, well, listen, um, some of these people are Chinese spies and, and other things of that sort, right? Uh, how and, – and, and, and in the mindset, it, it also lets people think that there's this wide you know, group of people in your country, you know, every Chinese restaurant, whatever, is maybe a spy zone. What's the reality on that, Roger? What's the reality for real? So, so I think the reality is that, look, if you, if you are – first or second generation Chinese, there is an expectation when you come back to China or when you travel through Mm -hmm. China that you're just going to have to answer questions, right? In the U.S., if we traveled all over to strange countries and came home and then the FBI met us at the door, (laughs) we would flip out. In China, it's sort of expected. So I think that a lot of it is is, it's not intentional or active espionage. A lot of it is innocuous or things of that sort. Um, But there is – Simultaneously, a very large and active campaign by the Chinese to actively deploy, to actively recruit um, uh, across sectors. 
And so that does go on. And the Chinese are very good at recruiting both ethnic Chinese and non-Chinese mm-hmm. and doing it in ways that it takes – you know, the person is is two, three years in before they realize right. – uh, the start to realize that maybe they're a spy <laughs> but – they don't really and they're not really right. and they don't want to feel bad and they can justify it and things right. of that sort. Sure. And and the Chinese have this great phrase they like to use and they're basically like to say, look, and this is a this is a Western phrase, right? Mm-hmm. If we can just talk and discuss more, we can understand each other better. Mm-hmm. And then we can mm-hmm. go back to our respective leaders and they can make better decisions and mm-hmm. we don't have to be fighting. And that's that's a, I mean to Westerners, that's a really, right. really great line, it's right? Co- you it's just want to diplomacy. And, and that's what we yeah. say we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so they can use that a lot in their in their recruitment mm-hmm. efforts. No, not every Chinese is a spy. That's way overdone. Do they actively run uh, operations? Lots of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, are all of them centrally controlled? Not necessarily. And there are competing spy agencies in China and competing operations by businesses that may not even be sanctioned by the government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it is something I think that's that's hard for the Americans to get a grip on. I mean, we know though that our allies spy on us too, right, and they're stealing course. stuff that's too. Right, but right. but I think it's the scale again. It's, it's the robust China, nature. It's the scale and right. the the extreme aggressiveness right. of it right. uh, that that takes the Americans aback. Right, right, right. We're talking about a number of important issues. Uh, we talk about espionage, trade, national security issues, military expansion dynamics that deals with China, the United States, that deals with really the entire world as it relates to what's going to be happening in the next 20, 50, 100 years uh, going forward. Um, these are some important issues that we got to get a grasp of. And even just now talking to Roger, I'm learning some new stuff about China that I hadn't you know, even known about, some things like that. So we've got to put this stuff in context. We're talking about these issues. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about cyber and what's going on with China and any other kind of last issues that we have. And, we, of course, there's never last issues but as much as we can get in on that last segment right there, we're talking to Roger Baker. He is the senior vice president for analysis at Stratfor. You can find the company at Stratfor.com. They do a number of different things in terms of analysis, understanding the threats that are out there, understanding the picture of the world, and making sure that you're able to have the information to make the good decisions that you need if you're a company, if you're an agency, or whoever you are. We'll, we'll be right back in a few minutes. We'll be right back in terms of discussing these issues. Listen to Fed Access with Derek T. Dortch on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. If you just joined us, we have been talking about China and China and national security. We've been talking about all the issues and the complexities that goes on with dealing with China. As you hear the president talk about it all the time, China, China, China. We're trying to understand these issues right now. And we've got Roger Baker in the studio with us right now. He's from Stratfor. He's a vice president of strategic analysis at Stratfor, and he understands China. He's been working on China for a long time. He's an expert on these different issues. You know, Roger, one of the big things everybody's talking about, and we kind of kind of touched on it a little bit in the last segment, cyber. You know, it, when it comes to cyber, you know, there's a dynamic in terms of people wondering where it's going. We're, under, we're trying to figure out where China is doing in terms of espionage and cyber espionage. We're hearing a number of different issues come up with malware, ransomware, and a whole bunch of other things that are going on trying to impact whether it be our small businesses or large businesses or government agencies. Where do we stand when it comes to China as it relates to cyber? So they are, without a doubt, one of the most uh, robust and intentional actors on the cyber uh, espionage as well as finding uh, exploitations within the cyber realm as part of a broad-based military defense strategy. Um, Because again, from the Chinese perspective, if you go into conflict, all things are on the table and you need to be able to utilize 
things that are going to give you an advantage. The U.S. is always going to have an advantage in certain key technologies, and and the the, the U.S. military has fought nonstop for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Right, the Chinese military hasn't fought since the 1970s. They haven't had to be in active combat. So right. there's if they ever go into conflict with the United States, there's a lot to learn sure. um, that they're going to have to pick up on. That's just second nature in, right. in a U.S. military. So what are the other things they can use? So it's finding vulnerabilities all over the place. Um, you know, can they can they interfere with communications? Can they interfere with electricity and electricity distribution grids? Can they can they make any pain hit strongly in the mainland of the United States without having to move to nuclear strikes, mm-hmm. right, and change that dynamic? Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the Chinese, a lot of the uh, activity is, is theft and combinations of, of – uh, state secrets or names of individuals. Right. Um, a lot of that's for targeting, right. and they can figure out how to target and find the right people and right. be able to pull in um, uh, economic information and technology for for developing their own. But there's also hunting and finding these vulnerabilities. And we watch patterns change in the the expansion or contraction of Chinese cyber activity based on their relationship mm-hmm. with the United States and their mm-hmm. access to U.S. companies. Right. If they can pull it through through people human connections. They reduce the cyber theft. Mm. If they can do, if they those connections start to get closed they down, they up. increase the cyber. So it's Got just to. they will balance around which flow of information they're pulling in and right. what they're finding. Right. You know that that makes me think about LinkedIn and other places like that. A lot of people have been, and I know you guys advise businesses all the time. But you know what? What's your perspective on kind of the dynamics of social media? I mean, and and the exposure that people may have on a LinkedIn or other social media websites. So social media from the start is a wonderful tool for collecting against individuals and the ability to sort through it and use keywords and things like that is a great way to find it. I mean, I may or may not uh, knowingly have one or two Chinese uh, uh, espionage accounts linked to my account sure. just to keep track of how they work and what they do and, right. and what they're, what, what's going on with them and then others I turn down. And it's re- and sometimes it's really easy. You know, right. you you read what the the people put as their jobs and their connections and things like that, and you <laughs> look at the look picture right. and you yeah. you back search the picture and find it's like a different person. I right. mean, some of it's easy, but the the it's really subtle how they do this. What they'll do is they'll come in, they'll they'll find a, a quick, easy way to connect, and usually it's people who are early in their mm-hmm, careers and mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. they connect to anybody out right, there, right. and then they sit dormant for two or three years, right? And then they come Just back and watching. send you a message, mm. and then they act like. You should have remembered them, and then mm-hmm. you check and be, oh, I've been connected for three years. Yeah, right. I should remember. Right. And so it, they're able to start it up that way. Right. And and this is not, you know, it's not a new thing using social engineering. Yeah. It's just more easily facilitated today mm-hmm. because of these technology tools and because people being willing to put a lot of things that I can't imagine when I was in college I would ever put these things in right. public right. that people are just throwing up in public permanently today. Exactly. Um, but and then the other thing is just and keep not an just eye professional, out. but personal stuff. Professional and personal, mm-hmm. and they and they what they're really doing though is network analysis. They're mm-hmm. they're they're analyzing the 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 human networks that are mm-hmm. built out and finding vulnerabilities in those networks and ways to tap into those networks. And then if they can find that vulnerability, that can give them access higher and higher and higher through mm-hmm. the network. Right. And and that's the way it works. Right. You know, for a person who's thinking kind of opsec wise, operational security or person or parsec wise, personnel security in terms of protecting yourself, right? Um, you know, especially in the world of connectivity and networking and everything else, uh, how do you advise clients sometimes in order to deal with you know, especially when you do have a very robust engine from China who's working and looking at your networks, who's checking things out, who plays the long game of maybe waiting for three years and sitting dormant and you're not thinking about certain things. And, and we'll, we'll do a lot of manipulation, especially in the new age where we've got deep fake. we got all these other different things that are coming out. 
you know, what do you suggest in order for people to even protect themselves in this cyber age? I mean, these days, the first thing you suggest is have the strategy for when it's obvious that you've already been violated. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> right, it's right. never going – it's no right. longer a question right. of if. If you're going to be violated, it, it, it's when. It, it is. Mm-hmm. It's when or did it already happen and you right. didn't right. recognize it yeah. yet. I mean, we forget that despite the fact that things seem to be moving so fast, mm-hmm. you can still stop for a minute or 30 seconds True. and think. <laughs> Right. Before you act. Right. And you can kind right. of pay attention to things. And if something just feels funky, let it sit there for a while. You don't right. have to respond to everybody instantly. You don't have to hold on to everything instantly. You don't right. have to open everything instantly. Right. Um, I think we, we've – uh, we've got George Jetson disease. We're all like on our little finger. <laughs> right, it's all right, little right. hurt right. lines coming off our fingers now because we're pushing every button. Sure, sure. Um, but, but I think that it's stop and think in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and no matter whether that's on the online space or whether that's out in public – that's just a logical thing to get back into and get back into that habit. And it will probably make us more sane right, too. <laughs> right, 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 right. Slow it down, it seems, is a concept. I guess in, in, in especially for this new generation, right, who seems to be oversharing almost, yeah. right? I mean, they're, you know, they've gotten to the point that their full lives are on Instagram or wherever the case is. It's almost kind of a, a we're going to have to kind of create a culture change almost because the new generation is coming into certain, you know, agencies, organizations, and companies, and we've seen – even just through a mindset of that, there, I don't believe that you should have this information. Well, I'm going to let it go or whatever. How do you think that companies are what I would call the insider threat now where you have a whole different situation going on? What's the next generation to deal with that? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's, that insider threat is always the biggest piece. And it's that, that question of, you know, in the government, it's how do you define patriotism? Is mm-hmm. patriotism telling everybody everything or is patriotism accepting that there are some secrets? I think there is going to be there's, – there's an education role in here too sure, for people. Sure. I think it's remembering that, look, secrets are not inherently bad. Everybody has certain secrets and right. secrets have a value and a sure. purpose. When you start really thinking about national security, um, it's really important. But I but it's hard to do in the U.S. Um, and it's hard to do in Europe mm-hmm. mostly because we really just have it so good and easy. Mm. And therefore, you can spend your time thinking about all of the conspiracy theories, right. whereas whereas if you're in a much different place, sure, sure. you don't have time. You're, you're just t- thinking yeah. about what you're going to eat right. or you're, you're thinking about the real basic yeah. basic survivals. Right. So part of our very success creates new vulnerabilities. Mm. And this is something I think that, that any empire, any, any mm-hmm. risen power mm-hmm. has to think about and has to deal with and has to manage. And and society changes, technology changes, and there are adaptations that have to take place. You can't use the exact same rules. I don't know how the sure. agency is going to sure. use rules on marijuana when it's legal in half the country right. now. Right, um, right, You know, you can't always apply the same rules, but you do have to teach certain baselines right. of of respect, patriotism, um, and and uh, honor in what you're doing. Right, right, right. Those are some good points to end off on, and I think the education piece is something that. Has to be, you know, and I know we'll talk about it at another point in time. We'll definitely get you back on the show. But the education piece really has to be now paramount in in, in the universities and the schools, and maybe even the lower levels at the high school levels and and the middle school levels where we're teaching certain things. You got to start them thinking at least at the middle school level yeah. and teach them to stop and think about what they hear rather than just believe and run with it. Roger Baker, he is from Stratfor. You can find Stratfor dot com. Great site. They've got a number of different things on there. You can read the blogs. You can see what's going on. Uh, they put the world in context, as they say, in terms of looking at things. He's the senior vice president of analysis. Roger, thank you for being on the show. Uh, we'll definitely uh, continue this conversation at another date and time. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 1 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.